0: Would never buy a house or a car without looking under the hood in the car or looking into the foundation of the house, and yet the chemical industry brings new chemicals to market every day of the week and advertises they're good without ever spending the time or the money to test them to see if they might have harmful effects. And this is this is just not sustainable it is not a good way to run our country there's no way that any parent can protect their child completely against chemicals chemicals are just too ubiquitous in today's world but my philosophy is to give parents actionable information
1: from the stuff your mother never told you to the stuff your doctor never learned on health is what happens when a midwife plus a yale-trained md shares about all things women's health from periods to menopause sex to reproductive health politics, motherhood to mental health. Join me for taboo-busting conversations that demystify and destigmatize our bodies, all while bridging the gap between conventional medicine and wellness. Along the way, we'll be exploring the science and wisdom of how our bodies work, what makes us well, what gets in the way, and how we can live our best lives on our terms. When it comes to women's health and well-being, there's nothing we won't talk about. The new medicine for women is here. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Welcome to the podcast. My guest today does not have a household name. Well, unless you're an environmental health geek like I am. But in my opinion, he should. Dr. Philip Landrigan's work has directly impacted our daily lives. Every time you're in your car, filling it with fuel, or walking into your house, and don't have to worry that your child might be exposed to lead paint. It's thanks to Dr. Landrigan. Dr. Landrigan was the first to document the effects of lead poisoning on American children, which led to the U.S. government mandating the removal of lead from gas, now over 40 years ago in 1976. His contributions also directly led to restrictions on lead in air and lead in paint. With the reduction of lead from these sources, the blood level of every child, actually every American, fell by more than 40%. And with it, he spared children significant losses in their intelligence, moods, and overall well-being. The expression you can't fight City Hall just doesn't apply to this man. He has fought City Hall on all of our behalf and has had major monumental wins. After getting the lead out, Dr. Landrigan turned his attention to cleaning up our food supply. He chaired a National Academy of Sciences committee between 1988 and 1993, whose work culminated in Pesticides in the Diets of Infants and Children, a groundbreaking report that brought light to the fact that children are uniquely susceptible to the effects of pesticides. The report called for making pesticide standards 10 times more stringent than they had been previously, and two major pesticides were banned from the residential market. This work also fueled the congressional passage of the Food Quality Protection Act of 1996, a major federal pesticide law that finally considered children's special vulnerabilities to food chemicals. Dr. Landrigan subsequently served as senior advisor to the EPA on children's health and prompted the creation of the Office of Children's Health Protection. Philip Landrigan is an American epidemiologist and pediatrician and one of the world's leading advocates of children's health. His work has been recognized by Healthy Child, Healthy World, where he received the Lifetime Achievement Award, and the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency Child Health Champion Award, among many others. His books include Raising Healthy Children in a Toxic World, 101 Smart Solutions for Every Family, and Raising Children Toxic-Free, How to Keep Your Child Safe from Lead, Asbestos, Pesticides, and Other Environmental Hazards. His newest book, co-authored with his wife, Mary Landrigan, is Children and Environmental Toxins, What Everyone Needs to Know. Dr. Landrigan has also published over 500 scientific papers and an incredible textbook, which I actually read cover to cover at bedtime reading and did not fall asleep once, which textbooks are great for. This one kept me going. Until recently, Dr. Landrigan was the professor of pediatrics and preventative medicine and founding director of the Children's Environmental Health Center at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. And he has recently, in fact, very recently, just moved to Boston to start an undergraduate program in global public health at Boston College. Dr. Landrigan, Thank you so much for joining me today. You truly are one of my heroes, and it's an absolute honor to have you on the show.
0: Aviva, it's a great pleasure to be here. You embarrassed me with that generous introduction.
1: Oh, it's so true. It really is. When I speak of you around my household, I'm like a kid in the candy shop, and the idea of being able to just even have a few moments of your precious time is a great gift, so thank you. So Thank you, too. Oh, you're so welcome. All right. I'm curious, what inspired you to focus your life's work on the impact of environmental chemicals on children's health? Rachel Carson's book came out in the late 60s, but this wasn't a dinner conversation and people were even thought to be a little bit off the deep end when they were thinking about these kind of things 40-something years ago.
0: Well, I, I guess it started when I was a pediatric resident. I trained at Boston Children's Hospital in the late 60s. And back at that time, we would still see children come in every year, especially in the summer months, with acute lead poisoning, children who had eaten paint chips and got a massive dose of lead and were incredibly sick. Then a year or two later, I joined the U.S. Public Health Service. I was assigned to the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta. And the following year, I got involved in one of CDC's very first investigations of an environmental health problem when CDC was just getting into environmental health. It was a a very large uh, epidemic of lead poisoning among children in El Paso, Texas, and it turned out that these children lived in the neighborhoods around a big uh, uh, ore smelter. A smelter is a plant that takes lead ore and heats it up to separate the lead from the rock. It was a very dirty, uncontrolled operation. It was spewing lead dust out across the city of El Paso, and we had very high levels of lead poisoning uh, in those children, and we subsequently did some follow-up studies a year later and showed that those children, even the children who appeared to be well, had seven-point reductions in their IQ. So those were the events that really got me started, the realization that environmental exposures could make children sick Some of the children were very acutely and visibly sick because they had high-dose exposures. Others had silent damage because of lower-dose exposures, but still very real injury. And I was just prompted by those episodes to devote my life's work to this area of uh, children's health and the environment.
1: Now, you shared with me when we first got on the call that you're starting an undergrad program at BC. But back then, what what course of study was there available to you? This was really a very formative time in environmental medicine.
0: Yeah, when I started out, there we had one course in medical school in preventive medicine. It was a general course, uh, well taught by a man who was a leader in the field. But that, but that was it. It was a single, a single course.
1: Yeah, I really had very little in my medical training. And I'm trained in family medicine. So in pediatrics, of course, we're doing screening for one year olds and two year olds uh, of just conventional, um, well baby check screening for their lead levels. But I have had kids come into my practice who were missed by their primary doctor with elevated lead levels. And it's not something that is easily early symptomatic, so it is very easy to miss. What were the symptoms that these kids were coming in with that suggested you check for acute toxicity at that time?
0: Well, I think the thing that both parents and physicians need to remember with regard to lead poisoning is that virtually all the lead exposure that we're going to see today produces no symptoms whatsoever. Back in the bad old days when children ate paint chips, those children came in very sick, sometimes with coma and convulsions. But the lower exposures to lead that children experience today, it's a silent poison. It erodes children's IQ. It shortens their attention span. It can disrupt their behavior. But all of those changes are subtle. They can easily be mistaken for something else. And the only way that a diagnosis of lead poisoning can be made in a child today is to take a blood sample from either the fingertip or the arm vein, and test the blood for the lead level.
1: And sure enough, I've had children who have grown up in inner city environments who have come back positive for lead. And I have a dear friend. She's a nurse. Her husband's an attorney. They were renovating a house. So not low income situation at all. And um, their old house was contaminated with lead and their little one. This was now... Oh, he's 30, actually, and at Harvard Law, so he's doing okay. But he came back with a lead level of, I think it was 42 when he was about 8 or 10 months old.
0: Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I know, and I'm glad you you framed it that way, because I think a lot of people believe that lead poisoning is restricted entirely to minority inner-city children, and unfortunately there is a preponderance of cases among those children, but it's by no means the whole story. We have... uh, middle-class children, children of every ethnicity, even families in very wealthy neighborhoods who get exposed to lead paint. We had a family a couple of years ago in New York City at Mount Sinai Hospital who had been eating uh, food off of very fancy, very expensive pottery that had been imported from France, and the pottery had a lead glaze on it which was getting into the food. So
1: Mm.
0: no child is immune, and the only way to make the diagnosis is by doing the blood test.
1: I was um, born in 1966. And I remember distinctly television commercials, PSAs, really informing us as kids and informing our parents really is what it was. I just heard it not to eat lead paint chips. And I happen to actually have grown up in a New York City housing project in a town called Flushing in Queens. That housing project is still there. It's deteriorated even since I grew up there. Uh, I was fortunate enough to have a good education and get out but interestingly, I just read, I think it was in the New York Times, and there have been increasing uh, awareness that some of the New York City housing projects, including the one that I grew up in, was not actually adequately remediated, and there is still lead. And we do know that for every problem facing children, those problems do tend to be compounded in lower socioeconomic settings. And I mean, Flint is, a, is another just absolutely devastating example can you address some of possibly the reasons why there are harder hits in lower socioeconomic communities and also what's going on right now when there's still a lot of lead out there it seems like
0: Yeah, there is still a lot of lead out there. There's there's less than there used to be because as you as you described in your introduction, no new lead has gone into paint since the 1970s. Lead has long since been removed from gasoline. But unfortunately, there's still a lot of lead out there, which is a legacy of the past. We have older houses, older apartment buildings with lead paint. Some older cities like Flint, but not only Flint, have lead pipes uh, and lead plumbing fixtures. And um, and so lead exposure is, is still widespread in American society. Unfortunately, uh, it's concentrated, not exclusively restricted, but concentrated in poor minority communities. I think the reason those the children in poor minority communities are especially hard hit by lead is that those are children who who are surrounded by multiple environmental threats, um, a higher level than some other children of social stress, not as good nutrition because they may live in a neighborhood where there is no fresh fruits and vegetables available, and then on top of that, the lead, and the impacts of all of these adverse environmental and social factors are cumulative. And and again, I'll reiterate that the only way to prevent children of any background, any ethnicity, from getting the consequences of lead poisoning is to screen them for For lead in their blood.
1: Do you feel like the uh, one-year and two-year checks are adequate? I just read an article in the Times recently looking at, um, essentially looking at children's teeth between the ages of 6 and 12 years old, almost like tree rings, as markers for environmental exposures. Do you think we need to be checking kids a little bit more frequently or at least every few years in their uh, elementary school ages?
0: Yeah, well, It turns out that that over the years, we've we've done a lot of studies of of which children are at greatest risk of exposure to lead. And generally speaking, it's children from the time they begin to walk, which is anywhere from nine or 10 months up to a year or so, up to the age of two or two and a half to three. Um, And so these are children of course who are mobile because they're walking, they're exploring their world they're putting their fingers on everything and then putting their their little fingers into their mouths. And so if there's lead paint uh, on a windowsill or on the, in the dust on the floor, those are the children who are at highest risk of, of getting it. Usually children under a year are not at risk because they're still in the crib. And kids beyond the age of two and a half or three can be taught not to put their hands in their mouths and that reduces the risk. So. That we do see cases of lead poisoning in four and five and six year old children, but the great the great majority are are between one and two or one and two and a half.
1: No, when my kids were little, I have four kids, they're all grown now, but when they were little we moved into an older home and I went to the hardware store and I got some they were like little cotton swabs or filters and I was able to uh, open and close the window sills because I think that's where a lot of the house dust comes from in older homes when you're getting that exposure from sliding the windows up and down, and we checked our home, and fortunately, we did not have lead dust. Do you recommend that kind of a simple home test that families can do, if especially if their kids are not at the age to get lead testing uh, routinely yet?
0: Yeah, the, 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 the home tests are pretty good. I'll tell you what the problem with the home tests is that if, if, if some of the painted surfaces in your house have more than one layer of paint, The the home test kit that you just described is only going to pick up the surface level. Mm. And if you have an older house, like a Victorian house, for example, that may have multiple layers of paint, the only way to really know whether or not there's lead paint in there is to call in a lead abatement specialist who will have with him or with her a little portable X-ray device that they can shoot the X-ray into the wall and measure whether there's any lead under the paint, under the surface.
1: And I take that that is not something that would be subsidized. Someone would have to pay for that out of pocket.
0: It, it, um, in most places, you'd have to pay for it, unfortunately. okay.
1: Yes. Another area that I uh, have found lead, and, and I did actually get this back from the extension service, was an older home that we were gardening in. And I tested the soil and there was actually lead in the soil. So we weren't able to grow certain things in that soil. Tomatoes, I think, were one of the things we were told not to grow.
0: Yeah, the, the way that comes about is this, if the garden is near the house and the house had lead paint, the lead paint erodes and chips over the years and gets into the soil. The way you can deal with that problem is to, there's um, a couple of ways. One is to have the garden further away from the house if you've got the space and the land to do that. Another is to remove the topsoil down to a depth of, I don't know, six or eight inches perhaps, and replace it with clean topsoil.
1: Oh, interesting. It's so persistent, isn't it? It's just so many ways.
0: But if you get rid of the dirty soil then and put in new soil, you'll be okay. Oh,
1: that's interesting. We did move our garden further back. I didn't know that about the topsoil. That's great. Okay, so in your new book, you celebrate the fact that overall children are living longer, healthier lives and suffer much less disease than at any previous time in history. But then you also identify two negative developments that you say threaten to undo quite a lot of this progress, the introduction of People made synthetic chemicals used in millions of everyday consumer products and a dramatic decline in communicable disease, however, a significant uptick in an epidemic of what we in the medical world call non-communicable diseases, so non-infectious diseases, but things that are more chronic like diabetes. Can you talk about, about what your concerns are and what you're seeing?
0: Yeah, well, you, you've you've captured it perfectly. There, there really are these two huge trends. Children, children today, really are much healthier than children in any previous time in history. A child born in America today can expect to live approximately 80 years on average. Compare that with the year 1900, 120 years ago, the average lifespan was about 45 years. So, lifespan has almost doubled. Infant mortality, the number of babies who die in the first. Few months of life is down by more than 90 percent. So those are those are enormous accomplishments that reflect a combination of good work by public health peoples, the people that bring clean water to cities and so on, plus medical work, vaccines, antibiotics, good nutrition, treatment of acute illnesses, everything everything that we do to uh, to protect children's health and to make them better when they're when they're sick. But You're absolutely right that over the last uh, 50 years, really 60 years, since the end of World War II, almost 100,000 new manufactured chemicals have been developed in, in this country and around the world. Those are chemicals that are found today in every product that we touch every single day, toys, clothing, furniture, carpets, building materials, motor fuels, anything that you, almost anything that you touch except maybe native wood. Or dirt it has manufactured chemicals in it now of course many of these chemicals have brought with them great good antibiotics for example the drugs that we use to treat cancer in children which which have brought about miraculous cures in kids with, with leukemia for example but at the same time there have been far too many chemicals that have come on the market that were never properly tested before they were brought to market and then a few years or even decades later, were found to cause really grave damage to children. Um, One um, early example of that was a drug called thalidomide. Thalidomide was a sedative, and back in the 1950s and 60s, it was found to be very effective at controlling morning sickness in women during the first trimester of pregnancy. The problem is, is that Nobody had done any proper testing of thalidomide before it came to market. And uh, women who took the drug, uh, nine months later, started having babies with terrible limb deformities, missing arms, and missing legs. And only after the fact did the medical profession realize that this drug was what we call a teratogen, a a chemical that can cause birth defects. Um, More recently, we have found that some of the very widely used pesticides, like members of the organophosphate, family, like chlorpyrifos, can cause um, injury to children's brains, especially if the exposure takes place during pregnancy, and that, just like lead, that exposure can reduce a child's IQ and disrupt their behavior. So we have this problem that thousands of chemicals have been developed. Some of them have done great good, but far too few of them have ever been properly evaluated or scrutinized. Um what I like to say is that you would never buy a house or a car without looking under the hood in the car or looking into the foundation of the house. And yet the chemical industry brings new chemicals to market every day of the week and advertises they're good without ever spending the time or the money to test them to see if they might have harmful effects. And this is, this is just not sustainable. It is not a good way to run our country.
1: When you were first doing the work to try to get the lead out of Sources that were exposures for us back in the 70s. Were you met with a lot of uh, pushback by industry and government?
0: Oh yeah, yeah, especially from industry. Um, the lead industry did not simply did not want to hear that lead caused damage to children at low levels. They were willing to accept that high levels of lead were dangerous, and the children shouldn't eat paint chips. But they did not at all want to talk about the notion that lead could cause silent brain injury to children. And it took a great deal of of pushback by many of us in the pediatric community and also by many colleagues in other sectors of society to finally get the EPA to take lead out of gasoline. The battles were very similar to the battles that um, we've seen around tobacco, they're similar to the battles that we're seeing now around pesticides, where the pesticide industry doesn't want to hear that certain pesticides cause brain injury or cause cancer and are, and are using all many different forms of propaganda to persuade the American public, to persuade regulators that there's no problem, that they can all go home and be happy. These are not easy battles.
1: When uh, my kids were little, I chose not to use things like flame-retardant-treated pajamas, and we were early adopters of an organic diet. This was before I was a physician. My family really thought that we were kind of extreme. We were actually pretty moderate, but these were things that we had been reading about in books like Circle of Poison and other books that were available at the time that were actually somewhat academic books, but fringe. And, um, you know, now it's funny. My kids are grown, the girls, I have three girls. They'll thank me for not putting them in the cancer pajamas, as they've jokingly said. And we know that there's tremendous risk from some of our everyday exposures, like flame-retardant products, which are ubiquitous. And I have so many questions for you. I guess one is just how how worried should parents be? I mean, this you know, we have parents who are trying to do their best. Every parent is trying to do their best and they're up against these behemoth companies and products everywhere. And it's scary. And I I don't want to add to parents living in fear. It's already anxiety provoking enough to do your best for little people. Um, But at the same time, we cannot bury our heads in the sand. These are real risks our kids are facing. How do you sort of balance that the knowledge of how severe these risks are with helping parents to be more, you know, to be somewhat, I don't know, not living in panic all the time.
0: Yes. No, it, it's so important to not push people into panic because um when, if that happens, and of course it sometimes does happen, parents can just shut you out and say, well, I just, it's just too much. It's too overwhelming. I, I can't be bothered. I'm just going to go ahead and live my life. And And I I try to help parents to get get beyond that. And I acknowledge that there's no way that any parent, no matter how hard they work, there's no way that any parent can protect their child completely against chemicals. Chemicals are just too ubiquitous in today's world. They're everywhere. They're in every product, uh, not every product, but in so many products, so widespread in the environment. But my philosophy is to give parents actionable information to give parents information that they can use that they can carry around in their head and use to protect their children against the most obvious uh, toxic chemicals that are out there and I break it down by saying to parents let's keep in mind one of the three biggest hazards that you're facing today and in my mind for most parents those three risks are lead pesticides and air pollution so in the case of lead I basically tell people uh, the things that we you and I have been talking about here for the last 20 minutes uh, if your child is between the ages of one and two uh, get the child screened for lead get the blood test done if you're pregnant or thinking about becoming pregnant uh, please please don't start stripping old paint in your house especially if you're pregnant or have little kids in the home because when you're stripping lead paint you can create dust and actually make the situation worse if, if if you do have lead in your home, don't try to do it yourself. Have a professional come in and um, spend the money because it's much cheaper to spend some money to get the lead paint abated than to have to deal with a child who's been injured by the lead. So that's lead. In the In the case of pesticides, the second big hazard, my advice to parents is minimize the use or better yet, eliminate completely the use of pesticides whenever possible. And so what that means in practical terms, first of all, in terms of around the home and in the garden, uh, use little or no pesticide, chemical pesticides on your lawn and garden. Learn to live with a few dandelions. If you have an insect problem, a cockroach problem in the house, we found it's far more effective and cheaper and safer not to use chemical pesticides, but instead to do what's called integrated pest management. That's an approach where the chemicals are are used almost not at all, and instead people close up the cracks and the crevices around the walls and in the corners, so that the cockroaches can't get in. They clean up the food residues so the cockroaches won't have any any food or drink, and it works very very well. We we field tested this even in inner city environments in New York City, and it worked very very effectively. And then finally, uh, to the extent that people can afford to do so, they should try to eat organic, at least eat organic on their fruits and vegetables. And the reason for that is that families who eat organic have 90% less pesticide chemicals in their bodies than families who eat so-called conventionally grown food.
1: What do you you think about the uh, environmental working group Dirty Dozen Clean 15? Is that a good guide?
0: Yeah, those are good guys, and I I often refer people to them.
1: Yeah, I do as well. What about water, drinking water? I mean, we know that Washington, uh, D.C. has had a big lead problem in the past decade. We're seeing this in Flint. I just watched a documentary about water, and it really seems to me that the um, controls over water sanitation plants, controls over piping, old piping, uh, a lot of us are being insidiously exposed to Lead and possibly other things, should people be buying water, filtering their water?
0: well, I, it it all depends on where you live. Some of America's big cities, Boston and New York, are two examples that I know well. have just have wonderful water. The water comes from very pure sources uh, in the mountains, far removed from the city. It comes into the cities through these enormous concrete pipes, which which are very clean on the inside. And in the in the big cities that have good water, the only place where contaminants can sometimes get into the water is in the last few hundred yards of piping, if there happens to be lead piping on a particular street or a lead fixture in 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 a particular piece of plumbing. And so, for people that live in big cities with clean water supplies, uh, the simple thing to do is to simply run the water for a couple of three minutes. First thing in the morning, before you make your coffee or make the baby's bottle, and that will flush the line, and you'll have clean water. If you live in a smaller city, or worse yet, if you're taking water from a private well, you got to you got to get the water tested. Well water in particular is very unregulated, and if a person lives in a part of the country where they're tapping into contaminated groundwater, they can get some pretty serious chemical exposures through their well water. So I. Strongly recommend that people who are on private wells get their water tested and maybe do it two or three times a year, maybe once in the summer when there's not much water, when the, uh, when there's not much rain, and then again in the wintertime when there's more rain and snow and see what's, see what's coming up.
1: And that's something people can often get done free through local public services, I believe.
0: Or at minimal cost, yes.
1: Yeah, okay. So you mentioned not stripping wood, et cetera, when you're pregnant. One of the things about lead and also many other exposures that we get, we download them to our children in utero when we're pregnant. Do you feel there's any role for women who are planning to conceive to get heavy metal testing done to see if their levels are high? I know that there was a study done in New York City sometime in the past I guess it was seven years, and it was looking at mercury levels amongst Asian women who were high sushi consumers, and it was found that 50% of them had mercury levels that exceeded recommended levels.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm not a big believer in metal testing for adults. I, I, as I said a few minutes ago, I'm a very strong believer in testing young children for lead but the the smartest thing that adults can do, especially adults who are thinking about becoming pregnant or who are pregnant today, is to is to take action to minimize their exposure to um, to toxic chemicals. So I mean, for years and years, we in the medical profession have been telling moms not to not to smoke, not to drink alcohol, not to take recreational drugs during pregnancy, and nowadays we have to add some other things to that. So, for example. I advise pregnant women to eat fish, eat a lot of fish, but you have to eat the right fish in order to avoid the mercury. And uh, the Environmental Working Group and the the NRDC and the Monterey Bay Aquarium are three organizations that have very good lists of which fish are safe and which fish are not safe to eat when you're pregnant.
1: Yeah, those are Um, the resources I use as well. And I think it's the NRDC, for those of you who are listening, it's either NRDC or Monterey Bay. They actually have a downloadable wallet card so you can print it out and take it with you if you're going to restaurants or someone you know eating out. It's really helpful.
0: Yes, absolutely. I agree completely. And also you need to watch out for that certain species of fish have high levels of PCBs, polychlorinated biphenyls, which are chemicals that have been dumped into waterways and then concentrated in fish.
1: Did you see that study from Puget Sound a few years ago? There scientists who were looking at salmon and found over 80 environmental chemicals, and a lot of pharmaceuticals. I mean, everything from Ritalin to to recreational drugs, birth control pills. It was disturbing. All right. So speaking of food, I know the area of genetically modified foods has been controversial. And much like me not having my kids in flame-retardant pajamas back in the the, uh, mid-'80s, a lot of parents have taken flack from their own families for saying they want just non-GMO foods for their kids. I know Vandana Shiva, the scientist has taken a lot of flack. And at the same time, you know, you're an an incontrovertibly respected scientist who's saying glyphosate may be a problem. Can we talk about GMO and glyphosate?
0: Sure. Well, uh let's start with glyphosate. So glyphosate is a herbicide. It's marketed under the name of Roundup. It's the world's most widely used herbicide and the use of glyphosate Roundup is increasing year to year to year in this country and around the world. The The heaviest application of glyphosate is to genetically modified crops because it turns out that uh, genetically modified crops require enormous amounts of herbicide to grow. So more than 90% of the corn, 90% of the soybeans, a very high proportion of the sugar beets grown in this country are heavily treated with with roundup and and nowadays the treatments are often uh, it used to be only in the springtime, but nowadays farmers are applying it later and later in the growing season, which means the likelihood is greater and greater that some of the glyphosate is going to carry through and be in the finished product in the in the sugar in the cereal. In the cornmeal, whatever whatever product uh, results from the from the from the treated crops, I I think that glyphosate is it's not a safe chemical. The um, there are certainly different studies out there, but the um, the international agency for research on cancer, which is the cancer agency of the World Health Organization, declared three years ago in 2015 that glyphosate is a probable human carcinogen and they they base that determination on a combination of increased risk of cancer mainly lymphoma in farmers who are exposed to glyphosate and coupled with increased cancers in experimental animals laboratory animals who were exposed to the chemical and so my advice to parents is Uh, Even though we don't have 100% evidence that glyphosate causes cancer, the fact that the World Health Organization says it's a probable human carcinogen means that you would be prudent to avoid eating the stuff. So how do you avoid it? You avoid it by eating organic. As much as you can, eat organic and look for USDA, U.S. Department of Agriculture, certified organic, and that way you will avoid the glyphosate and Avoid exposing your children to a potentially cancer causing chemical?
1: So the million dollar question here, we've known since the sixties that these things are a problem. You proved it with lead. The World Health Organization has made this pronouncement. We've got something like eighty to a hundred thousand new to our environment chemicals in the last fifty years alone. The evidence is there. What is it going to take? to make these changes, public policy, across the board? What is it going to ch- take to get glyphosate out of the food system? It's not like the, uh, like the agricultural techniques aren't there. They are. Is this an industry issue? Is this government? Yeah. It, what is going on?
0: Well, you have to understand that the pesticide industry has become a multi-billion dollar business. And they, in consequence of that wealth, they have enormous political power. They can reach into the Congress. They can reach into the government agencies that are supposed to be protecting children. And too often they call the shots, at least for a period of time. At least they can delay regulation. Sometimes they can bottle it up altogether. And I, I think the that ultimately, just in, as happened 40 years ago with clean air and clean water, there has to be so much public outrage that People say, enough already, this is intolerable, we cannot continue to expose our children to thousands of untested chemicals, some of them known to be harmful, Uh, we just have to take action. The Europeans are actually moving out ahead of us on this. Uh, the, The countries in the European Union, back in 2007, so a decade ago, passed some very strict legislation that puts... Many more barriers um, up in front of the chemical industry than anything in this country. And one consequence of the difference now between European regulation and American regulation is that products that are no longer allowed to be sold in Europe are being dumped in this country.
1: That's the circle of poison that was talked about in a book I read in around 1980, which was almost the opposite. We were exporting things like old drums of DDT, but then they were re entering through the foods that we were buying from other countries. Now we're just getting the things that we're, we're what's being done to us is what we did back in the day. So, a couple of questions for you on what parents can do. We know that from studies that have looked at pesticide and herbicide washout going organic, you can actually see tremendous washout, meaning that kids change their diet and three days, five days, seven days later, a lot of these organic agents, these pesticides and herbicides are out of their system. So we can have kids switch to primarily organic, but with lead, it's persistent in our systems, right? It takes up residence in our bones. Even for children who have had very low levels of exposure, are there things parents can do uh, on a health level for their kids? other than prevention?
0: Yeah, I mean, some doctors talk about what's called chelation therapy, which are medications that can be given either orally or by intravenous to move chemicals like heavy metals out of the body. Chelation, in my opinion, chelating therapy can be life-saving if you have a child with really severe lead poisoning or mercury poisoning who comes into the hospital with obvious signs and symptoms, and that happens maybe once every two or three years. But the rest of the time, I don't think that chelating uh, adults or children has any place in medical practice. It's uh, it's not very effective, and it can be very dangerous because the chelating agents are non-discriminatory, and they can pull essential minerals like manganese and magnesium and calcium out of the human body. And every year, CDC reports a, a few deaths in people around the United States who um, have been taking chelating agents. So I strongly recommend against the use of chelating agents except in acute medical situations.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And some of them are dangerous. You can have Stevens-Johnson reaction to DMSA. So they're, they're not safe for just uh, a lot of the integrative and functional practitioners are now recommending them, and I, I don't in my practice as well. So what can parents do, mostly just avoid it and, and to detect it early?
0: Yeah, I like to say that parents can act... Uh, on three levels, they can act in their own homes, they can act in the local communities and cities where they live, and they can act on the national stage. So let's, let's talk about each of those three for just a minute. So, so in in their own home, the the mother, the father, the head of the household, are the are basically the chief executive officer of the house, right? They they control what comes in, up to a point at least. They can they control what products are purchased, what comes into the house, what foods the family eats. And so they can, they can make wise choices to eat safely and to avoid dangerous foods, just as parents try to steer their kids away from junk foods that are going to push up their cholesterol and increase their risk for obesity. So too, parents should, uh, to the extent possible, uh, buy organic foods, have their children reach for an apple or a pear instead of an Oreo. Uh, for a snack, that kind of thing,
1: and this is what you call prudent avoidance.
0: Prudent avoidance. I couldn't. Yes, perfect. It's a great phrase. term.
1: It's a great term.
0: Yeah. Another another example of prudent avoidance in the home is not buying furniture which is filled with brominated flame retardants. Look for look for furniture that is free of those chemicals that can erode children's uh, intelligence. Mm-hmm. In in the community, at the at the at the level of the local school district, the local town, the local city, parents. Uh, have been involved in multiple, often very successful, campaigns to improve the environment. For example, one example is pesticide reporting laws, forcing pesticide applicators to report in open source data every pesticide application that they make. Several big states, New York, California, Massachusetts, possibly others, have these pesticide uh, reporting logs, and people can look up their town or their county and find out how much pesticide is being applied there, when it was applied, and how much was applied. Uh, the pesticide industry, of course, fights this. They don't want people to know how many pesticides are being put out there, but but it's an excellent campaign to, um, to go for these pesticide reporting. Another thing at the local level is neighbor notification laws. Many towns and cities now will not let a person spray their yard with pesticides unless they've given their neighbors 48 or 72 hours notice and the neighbors have the right to protest during that period if they if they choose to do so another thing at the local level is uh, turf fields Uh, in many communities families have successfully withstood the pressure to spend millions of dollars to put synthetic turf fields on the playing fields um, where where children are going to be playing football and soccer and baseball. And then finally, at the, at the broader level, parents who are concerned about what's happening with the environment in this country at this time need to vote. We have an election coming up in November. Um, we have a presidential election two years after that. People have to get out there. People have to vote. Uh, I've always said it's not a Republican thing or a Democratic thing, but people have to vote for candidates are going to take uh, prudent action to protect their children.
1: You have answered my question about how parents can get political. And we've seen over decades now that um, what Margaret Mead said, right, never doubt what a small group of dedicated individuals can do. It's incredible and phenomenal. And uh, really, truly, I have to just thank you for for dedicating your life and your work to What I know at times must have felt like an uphill battle and there were probably easier things that you could have done, but we're all here today and we're all literally, truly smarter because of you. So thank you so much, Dr. Landrigan, for everything you do for us and for taking the time to talk with me today.
0: Aviva, thank you and keep up your great work with this show.
1: Thank you. What is the best way that families listening, moms, dads listening can find out more about your work and get a copy of your latest book which is fabulous well
0: our book is called children and environmental toxins what everyone needs to know uh, it was the authors were myself and my wife mary landrigan who uh, is a uh, also a public health professional she's a she served for 25 years in the westchester new york uh, public health department as a senior health educator the book is published by oxford university press And it's available uh, in bookstores and of course through Amazon.
1: Thank you so much. And we'll put all the links below so it can be an easy get for people. I wish you well and I will certainly be keeping an eye out on what you're doing and thank you for again for everything that you do and will continue to do.
0: Thank you, Aviva. All best to you now.
1: I hope you enjoyed this episode, that it helped you to feel seen and heard, and perhaps that it even brought you some aha moments. Please share the love by sharing this with a friend or someone in your life who could benefit from the kinds of things we talk about in this space. Also, make sure to follow me on Instagram at dr.avivaram and go to avivaram.com to join the conversation about the show on my blog. While you're there, you can sign up for my free newsletter with tips on taking back your health. Be sure to leave a rating and a review for the podcast and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every week. Can't wait to see you next time.